This morning I call your attention to John's Gospel chapter 17. John's Gospel chapter 17 verses 20 to 26. As Jesus continues praying for his disciples, his followers, he says there, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The description of this prayer of our Lord Jesus here in John 17, namely the high priestly prayer of Jesus, was coined, we are told, by the 16th century Lutheran theologian David Critreus. This prayer, one of the few his disciples heard, gives us, as we said, some idea as to the contents of his present intercessory ministry in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this ministry, of course, is alluded to in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It's referenced in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, as well as Romans chapter 8, verse 34. In verses 11 through 19, Jesus had been praying for his apostles and other believers who were following him, those who had come to believe on him while he was here on earth. And here in verses 20 to 26, we now have his prayer for all believers. That's what we're considering this morning, is prayer for all believers, not just the original apostles, the original disciples, but every believer across time, past, present, and future. Referred to his apostles and many who believed on him during his time here on earth. Jesus petitions his father in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. And just as his original disciples received his word, believed in him, and came to know him, according to John chapter 17 and verse 8, so would his future disciples. Jesus speaks of his future followers, his future disciples then, as, quote, those who will believe in me through their word. Their word, that is the word of the apostles, and the question is, what word was it? It was the very word of God. The very word of God which Jesus had taught them and which he had entrusted to them. It was that word which they had preached shortly after his resurrection throughout the first century. And it was that word which they committed to writing by way of the Gospels and the Epistles. It is that very word which you and I have 
access to in our time through the scriptures. It is that word which ought to be preached throughout the ages. This is the very word that is to be preached in our day, and this is the word that is foundational, that is most crucial to a genuine experience of salvation. For faith, the word of God tells us, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. And what all of this means is that throughout the ages and until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's way of salvation and eternal life is, has been, and will always be through faith, that is through faith in Christ and in his word. And we come to see then something of the high premium that our Lord Jesus places on his word. The emphasis, the accent falls not on our feelings, not on our impressions, not on our subjective experiences, but on the apostolic word that's grounded in the word of God, which is at one and the same time the word of Christ, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, with respect to all who across time come to faith in Christ, come to follow him, come to embrace him as Savior, Jesus prays, first of all, notice, he prays for their unity. He prays for their unity. And we touched on this matter of Christian unity a few Sunday afternoons ago, but because of its relevance to this paragraph, we will say something further about this. All of five times here in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to his Father regarding the unity of his disciples. Earlier in verse 11, and now here in verses 21 to 23. Hear him in verses 21 to 23. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one." I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus could pray with such intensity for the unity of his followers, of his disciples, because he knew well of the vital, crucial importance of unity. He well knew that his Followers, if his followers were to live in unity with one another, then that would spell defeat for Satan. Because you see, Satan's aim, and this is something we must realize, and particularly when we have and or observe situations of conflict, of dissensions, of disunity in the church, one of the things we are to realize is this. Satan's aim is ever to sort among brethren because he knows full well that where such ills exist, there will be, according to James chapter 3, verse 16, disorder and every vile practice. And that disunity spells defeat. Because as Jesus himself taught in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, here's what our Lord Jesus said concerning this unity as bringing defeat upon God's people. He says there, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself 
will stand. Where there is division, where there is disunity, where there is dissension, there can be nothing but disintegration of God's people, of God, of their testimony. And so his repeated prayer for the unity of his followers here in John chapter 17 calls attention then to the great power there is in unity. Someone as well put it like this, quote, if God's people could become one, if differences could be put aside and factions eliminated, the ensuing unity would create a juggernaut that Satan would be unable to stop. We could transform our world with the gospel. That is the power of unity, the unity of God's people. Secondly, notice Jesus prays not only for their unity, but he prays for their proximity. He prays for their proximity to him, that is, for their nearness to him, their closeness to him. Look at verse 24. There he says this, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. What a prayer. He pours out his heart here to his father and he says, Father, this is my desire. And it's as though he's saying to his father, I know, Father, you take delight in answering my prayer, my desires. Here's my desire to you. My burning desire, my passionate desire is that those whom you have gifted to me, those whom you have presented to me as a token of your love for me, I am praying that they might be with me where I am. As many as five times in this prayer, notice he addresses the Father. He addresses God as Father. He does so three times in verses 1 and 5. He does so twice in verses 11 and 25, where he addresses him as Holy Father and Righteous Father. It's amazing, isn't it? Our Lord Jesus, the divine Son of God, in his human form, was reverent before his father. He affirmed him, he recognized him as the holy God of heaven. He affirmed him, he acknowledged him as the righteous God. Holy Father, that's how he appeals to him. Holy Father, righteous Father. And what he's suggesting there is that by virtue of God's character as the holy and righteous God, he surely will not disappoint, he will not fail with respect to making good these requests that he's making of him. Referring to his disciples and all believers as those whom the Father has given me, notice he petitions his Father that they might be with him where he is. Of course, where is he right now? He's in heaven. And the point is, he's praying and he's anticipating that time when all is redeemed will actually be with him in a living way, in a real way, in heaven, the very place where he resides. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. What does such a prayer signify? For sure, it speaks eloquently of the profound love, of the depth of affection he has for his redeemed. Indeed, it was an account of his great love for them that he left the glories of heaven, that he left the splendors of heaven to come where they were, steeped in sin, 
and under the sentence of divine condemnation. He loved them that much to leave the glories and riches and splendor of heaven to step into their poverty and wretchedness. Furthermore, it was an account of such tremendous depths of love for his redeemed that he was willing to lay down his life in cruel, violent death so as to redeem them, so as to save them from eternal hell and condemnation. That's how much he loved them. And to cap it all up, he expresses here in his prayer his desire for them to be with him. Notice, not just to be with him, but to see his glory. People often ask this question. I get this question at times. What will heaven be like? And there are some people who imagine that being in heaven is all about floating on clouds all day long, strumming at a harp. But of all the conceptions you and I may have of heaven, my friends, wonderful and fanciful as they might be, this is what we must bear in mind. Let me tell you what heaven is largely going to be about. Our time in heaven, you see, will largely be a matter of continually, unendingly beholding the glory and wonder and majesty of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing our loved ones is going to be wonderful. But there'll be nothing like the glory and wonder of admiring the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the psalmist in Psalm 27, verse 4. He says this, one thing, one thing, one thing I have desired, which I've asked the Lord. What is that thing, David? He says that I may behold the Lord in his temple and that I may inquire of Heaven will be an experience of the of unending delight, of beholding, of contemplating, of seeing the majesty and wonder and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what heaven is going to be like. Our time in heaven will largely involve continually beholding his glory throughout the measureless, endless eons of eternity. The songwriter says, there's one line, he says, and I shall look upon his face, the one who saves me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand, and I can't remember the song very well, and leads me to glory land. What a day, wonderful day that will be. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And he's talking about that against the backdrop of the sufferings, the sorrows, the tribulation of this life. He says it will be worth it all when we see Christ. One look. At his face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Second, Jesus prays that being with him, his disciples and all subsequent believers, and I will just say it again, you'll see his glory. Now, as you read throughout the scriptures, you'll find the apostles stating how that they had seen the glory of Christ. Now, here's Jesus saying, I want for them to be with me, that is my people, not just the apostles, but all disciples of all times, I want to, them to be with me where I am to see my glory. Now, we are saying here, the apostles um, throughout the ministry of Jesus saw his glory. People saw his glory. Remember at the wedding of Cain and he manifested his glory. 
The Apostle John says of Christ, the incarnate word, John chapter 1, verse 14, here's what he says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. He says, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What he was referring to was that occasion when, on an unnamed mount, some say it was Mount Tabor, Peter and his fellow apostles were with Jesus. The Word of God tells us in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, here's what Matthew says, And he was transfigured before them, such that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Peter was so enthralled by that Vision, that sight of Christ, he was so elated. He says, Lord, do you want for us to build three booths? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. Regarding that occasion, Mark chapter 9, verse 3. Here's how Mark chapter 9, verse 3 describes that glorious occasion of Christ's manifestation of his glory. Mark tells us that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Tide could not do that job. While Luke 9.29 records that as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The apostles saw his glory. The prophet Isaiah, we are told in John chapter 12 verse 41, Jesus actually is saying this as he quotes a whole slew of statements by the prophet Isaiah. Here's one of the things that John says, John says in John 12, verse 41, Isaiah spoke these things because he saw the glory of Christ. He saw the glory of Christ and spoke of them. And the context of Isaiah's statement cited in John chapter 12, verses 30 to 40, suggests that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ in his death and resurrection. Because remember that line, he has Isaiah saying, who has believed our report? It's a citation from Isaiah 53, and Isaiah is suggesting there that the glory of Christ was seen in his suffering, in his death, and his glorious resurrection as well as in his vision of the enthroned, exalted Lord. Remember what he said in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I saw Adonai, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And Isaiah tells of his response as he looked upon this, this manifestation of the glory of God. He said, woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He was terrified at the wonderful, glorious sight of the Lord Jesus. It was Jesus who he saw. That's what John's gospel tells us. Now, according to verse 22a of our text here in John 17, our Lord Jesus states that this glory of his, he has given to his followers. Mark you, notice, watch the text. Who is he praying here for? Verses 20 to 26, he's no longer praying just for the 12. He's not no longer just praying for the many who followed him during his time on earth. He's praying for all believers across time. And he prays, he states that this glory of God, this glory that was given to him, he has given to them. That is to those who believe on him. Someone will ask this question. Well, what does that mean? Because I don't see anything of that glory. Jesus says he has given us that glory. 
I see no physical halo floating around anyone's head in here. There's nothing spectacular. There's nothing phenomenal. There's nothing unusual. There's nothing extraordinary about our, our appearance that would say we are manifesting that glory. The question then is, what is this glory that he has given to us, his people? That's a very good question to ask. We can't just gloss it over. Now, I'll tell you this. There, I don't know of a commentary. Maybe there, there, there are commentaries. I came across one in which there was doubt as to how this glory, what was involved in this glory that he has manifested to his people. But I'll tell you what I think it is. And it's always not quite a good thing to say what we think scripture is. But let's, and, and I guarantee you, what I, what I suggest it is, I should be able to at least have some analogy in scripture to, to establish that. But let me say to begin with that this glory that Christ has imparted to his people on this side heaven is not the kind of glory many think it is. It is not some physical feature. It is not some visible, physical, tangible feature that you can say, look, there's a halo over your head or mine. It is not some physical manifestation. The question then is, what is this glory that God has given his people? And here it comes. This glory that Christ has imparted to his people is, I believe, is manifested in our exhibiting likeness, moral likeness to him. It consists in our reflecting his character. It consists in our Christ-likeness. It consists, 1 John 2 verse 6, in our walking as he himself walked. For example, this glory consists in our conducting ourselves in unity, and that's why we must read scripture in its context, right? Because what is Jesus emphasizing throughout this passage? Unity. And this glory that he has given his people consists then in our conducting ourselves in unity with our fellow believers such that we reflect the very unity, that unity that subsists between himself and his father. Notice he keeps saying, even as we are one, I in you, you in me, I want for them to be just like that. I think that the glory that he has given us, beloved, is this capacity, this ability to reflect, to manifest the kind of oneness, the kind of unity that subsists in the Godhead. Here's the point. There's nothing more beautiful, nothing more sightly than to see God's people, regardless of color, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of social standing, regardless of their walk in life, uniting around the things of Christ. Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. And the psalmist likens it to what? He says it's like the precious ointment that flows down to the beard, even to the skirt of Aaron's garment. The beauty, the wonder, the glory of unity. Jesus is praying for his people's proximity to him because he wants for them to see his glory. He wants for them to see and to reflect 
his glory. Now, we still have something to um, cover before we move on. And here's a question, and by way of application, I would like to ask in passing, and this is a challenge for every single one of us. If it is that the glory of Christ that he has given to us is the manifestation of our moral likeness to him, the question has to be then, how much of that glory are you reflecting in your daily life? How much of that glory is manifested in your relationship with others, in your conduct, in your whole way of comporting yourself, your whole deportment, your behavior as a professing Christian? You see, that's where it's at. The question is, are we reflecting the character, the glory of Christ through not just our unity, but through the quality of life that we live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? We recall that after the Sanhedrin, that council of religious leaders, after they had insisted that Peter and John cease preaching in the name of Jesus, remember, even as they observed the boldness of Peter, the, here's what the word of God tells us. Luke records in Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What was happening there? They were reflecting what? The glory of Christ. They were reflecting Christ-likeness. The same was true of Stephen. Even as he stood before his detractors, his enemies, those who were persecuting him, the Bible says they could not resist the wisdom and grace with which he spoke. In fact, Luke tells us that and here's where it became physical for, in the case of Stephen, his face shone. What was that? The glory of Christ, the radiance of Christ. And let me say here, beloved, that that glory of his will by degrees be manifested in us through the daily transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. How do we know that? First, Second Corinthians 3, verse 18, here's what the word of God says. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. To the extent that we are spending time with God, to the extent that we are spending time in the presence of Christ, to the extent that we are making his will our will, to the extent that we are loving him, serving him, we will be reflecting the glory of Christ. Remember Moses, Moses spent 40 Days on the mount when he came down, what happened? The word of God tells us children of Israel could not look upon him. Why? Because he came away with the presence of God stamped upon him. Now very quickly, granted that the, this glory of Christ was seen by the apostles and the prophets and is being seen in our time as people observe our lives, they see the character of Christ in us, the glory of Christ in us. The question then is what then does Jesus mean in praying that his followers might see him, might see his glory. And the assumption is in heaven. What does he mean then, that they might see my glory? And simply put, this glory he's speaking of is this. It is the fully manifested, the fully unveiled manifestation of his splendor and glory as the divine son of God. In other words, what the apostles saw when they said, we beheld his glory, what Isaiah saw when he said, woe is me, was just a tip of the iceberg. 
truth is there's no human being that can see the glory of God, the raw, naked glory of God on this side heaven, on this side eternity, and live. That's why God had to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passed by because he says, no man can see me and live. Jesus says, well, here's what's going to happen. Father, here's my desire. I want them to join me someday that where I am there in heaven, they might see my glory in all its fullness, in all its splendor, in all its wonder. This glory is a fully unveiled manifestation of his majesty, of his splendor as a divine son of God. Listen, it is his pre-incarnate glory. That is to say, the glory he had before he came to this earth. The pure essence of divine glory. And it is this he refers to in John 17, 5. Remember John 17, 5, where he says, The glory that I had with you before the world existed. The fullness of glory none on this side has ever seen. As well, this glory that he prays for, that his disciples might see, refers to his post-resurrection glory. His post-resurrection glory and his ascension into heaven, where he is now at the right hand of God. He is praying that they might see his present glory. This was the glory that the Father gave him for his obedience in laying down his life in cruel, violent, humiliating death. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 calls attention to this glory that the Father gave him. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Also 1 Peter 1.21, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Ephesians 1.20 and 21, God raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here it comes far above all principalities and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What a glorious prospect that awaits us as believers in him. To see his glory, to see him in all the fullness of his splendor, of his glory. That's what's going to make heaven, heaven. The question is, why would Jesus want his people, those whom his Father has given him, to see his glory that he received from his Father? For sure we can say this. He desires that his redeemed, his followers, see this glory because he intends to share that glory with them. Do you know Scripture teaches that? Scripture says, I am God, there is none else. My glory will I not share with another. And yet in the New Testament, we learn that we are actually going to participate. We are going to share in that glory. On what grounds can we say that? Because we can say that on this grounds. You see that one of the purposes, listen, one of the purposes for which God saved us, for which God redeemed us, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the moral likeness to the Lord Jesus. We can say that on the grounds of 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, which indicates that with the prospect of living with Christ comes the promise of reigning with him. In fact, the word of God assures us in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, and if children, here's the logic of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, he says, and if children, are we children? Well, here's what follows. 
than heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with a glory that will be revealed to us. We are going to share in that glory. And the Apostle John, Mark, in 1 John chapter 3, alludes, he hints at something of this glory. Because remember what the Apostle John says there in 1 John 3 verse 2, and we're winding down. He says this, Beloved, now are we the children of God. Here's the point. Not when we die, not when we go to heaven. He says, Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it does not yet appear what we're going to be. Why would John say it doesn't yet appear what we're going to be? Because when you look at us right now, you see signs of decay. Our our hair falls. Our hair turns gray. Some of us will have to die. The filling from our teeth falls. In fact, our teeth falls out. We can hardly walk. There's pain. It's difficult to get up. We're subject to sickness. Age as a way of disfiguring many of us. So John says it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we are going to be like him, for we shall see him as he is. To what aspect of God's Christ's glory was he referring? He was referring to that glory of Christ, whereby according to Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are going to be changed. And John is saying here that one of the ways we are going to see and participate in the glory of Christ is that our very bodies are going to be fashioned according to his glorious body. Are we beautiful now? We would be mistaken if we think that's it. It's going to be way, way better. See? This prayer of Jesus for his disciples to be with him then where he is we could say in closing, assures us the very fact that he prays that those whom the Father has given him might be with him, the very fact that he prays that they might be with him assures us of the certainty of his return. For he says in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, There you may be also. It assures us that at his return, those of us who are alive, because we will not all die, the word of God says, those of us who are alive and remain at the coming of Christ will be caught up in the clouds. He says we'll be caught up in the clouds and we'll meet the Lord in the air. We will all to meet the Lord in the air with those who went before. And here's what he says. And so shall we ever, so shall we always be with the Lord. This prayer of our Lord Jesus assures us of his love for us. It assures us of his coming for us. It assures us of his delivering us from the corruption of this present life, the corruption and decay to which we are subjected in this life. Let the church say glory. Let the church say praise God. We are destined 